0: Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Stefan Granados, who joins me to discuss his book, Those Were the Days, The Beatles and Apple. I love the original version of this book from 2002, so I was really excited to hear Stefan had an updated version coming out. The book is great at dispelling the myth that Apple was the Beatles' great folly. It looks at the varied and successful careers on Apple of James Taylor, Badfinger, Mary Hopkin, among many others. And it demonstrates how Apple, now of course a multi-million pound business, carefully cultivated the Beatles brand and ended up becoming basically what the Beatles envisioned all those years ago. Well, Stephen Granados, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How do we find you? How are you? Joe, doing
1: great. Uh, Really looking forward to this. I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts and they're always really interesting and uh, look forward to speaking to myself.
0: That's very kind of you to say. Um, So we're here to talk about Those Were the Days, the Beatles and Apple, uh, the the new 2.0 version as as it's known. Um, If we can go back initially to the original version of this book, which was published approaching twenty years ago now, uh, two thousand and two. What was it that attracted you all that all those years ago to the story of the Apple kind of empire?
1: Well I think like so many of the people who are interested in the Apple piece, they all come into it as Beatle fans. And I, I started buying Beatle records in the the mid eighties in, in you know high school and I quickly uh, ran through the Beatle albums and the solo albums and I you know, heard something in a record shop, and I said, that sounds really Beatly. and it was was the Magic Christian album, and there was the Apple behind it, and I said, well, this is the Beatles thing, and I I purchased it, and that was the first one, and in America at the time, in the late 80s, 80s, mid-80s, you know, there were cutouts, the whole Apple catalog, for the most part, you can get for a dollar or two in, in the cutout bins, except for Straight Up, and I think the James Taylor album, and I enjoyed it, but You know, as as time moved on, I I became involved in in different kind of music and uh, didn't really give too much thought to my Beatle collection until around the early 90s when Apple started doing those reissues. Mm. And I recovered it and, you know, with the liner notes and the additional material, I was like, wow, this really was a, a great time and some great music. And I wanted to learn more about it. And occasionally record collector or someone would do, Andy Davis would do a nice article or Pete Doggett but I was looking for a book and I had the Richard Delello book, but that was more of a personal memoir, incredibly accurate personal memoir. Um, I'm shocked about how accurate some of those little weird tossed off details are as I've gone through mine, but there was no book on Apple records. Um, And I looked, you know, high and low. And this was sort of pre-internet. So you couldn't really, there wasn't an Amazon UK to search or Amazon. I, I was in New York city and there were a lot of bookshops and there was nothing. So I said, well, maybe I should write one myself. And, uh, a little ambitious I, I had done some writing in college and a couple of uh, you know articles for New York City newspapers but I'd never done a long-form book but I was working in music publishing uh, so I had a lot of access to databases such as they were more like file uh, you know little note cards with uh, songwriters addresses and their royalties and all that And I were able to find some of the folks you know the Mortimer guys and things like that and started Collecting enough information, I was like, all right, maybe there's something here. And I, you know, connected with some folks in England. George Peckham was one of the first people uh, I connected with because he still had his business on Shakespeare Avenue, uh, Porky's Mastering. I went down there and met with him uh, and uh, Nigel Oliver for a great afternoon. And as I got enough information, I said, you know what, I can really do something with this. And this is, you know, what I did. It was all pre-internet. So it was a lot different at the time, Mm. you know, uh, phone books in uh, the New York Public Library for like, well, oh, there's there's six Chris Hodges in LA. Let's start with this one, and uh, you know, eventually though it connected, but it was it was very labor and time intensive. But it, it turned out as well as it it could have, you know, given that that space and time.
0: And um, what was it that inspired this version? What was it that kind of uh, was this something you've been looking to do for a long time, or was the new version something that that kind of came to you quite recently?
1: Well, the new version is something I was looking to do almost as soon as I, I got the original version. Uh, there was, you know, some some mistakes in it that I wanted to correct. There was a lot of, even between the six months from, all right, the book is done and now it's printed, you know, new material comes up. It, it's, you know, just constantly finding new things. And with the, you know, the Internet really changed things as well towards, the, you know, right as the book was published. So you're able to connect with a lot more people. And I had so much more interview material that I wanted to add just up until the 2002 point where I, I had ended the original book. And then obviously since then, you know, so much has happened. The music industry in general, um, the Beatles and Apple, I mean, just unfathomable things at the time, the whole saga with Apple uh, Apple Inc., you know, and the fight over the Apple name. Neil Aspinall leaving, who would have thought? You know, the Beatles become a Las Vegas attraction. It, it just wasn't feasible in 2002, but it happened. Um, you know, the Apple catalog being reissued, I didn't think that would ever happen after 93. You know, it is a limited commercial appeal, but they did an amazing job with it and the things that they were doing, you know, the the white album reissues. I, I never thought we would hear those things. And uh, it was something we wanted to capture and bring it up to date. And uh, you know, here we are. We'll see what happens next. <laughs>
0: You've done a marvellous job of, of bringing it up to date. Something that I'm always interested in is is kind of personalities uh, in the Beatles story and around the Beatles. Um, You spoke to so many people associated with apple for for both versions of the book staff artists etc did they all have kind of similar memories of either being on apple or or working for apple was there something that they kind of had in common what was it like to be an apple artist essentially
1: they they did i mean there were some people who were were privy to different things you know You know, Peter Brown obviously had a much different take because he was there, you know, with with the Beatles every day. Um, He wasn't, you know, too much involved with the artist side. Um, You know, the artists had a a pretty similar uh, feel for for what Apple was. Uh, They were incredibly grateful to be associated. Most of them, you know, felt that they got a very fair shake. Employees, it was a mixed bag. You know, some people were overwhelmed by it. Others were just another day at the office. But they, they got it. It was, it was sort of historical. They they were proud to be associated with you know putting out Beatle records and bad finger records and what have you. And and most of them were fairly consistent with their experiences. I mean there were some one of the things I tried to capture, you know, it is office with you know 40 or 50 people and people don't always get along. You know, there was one employee that people were just merciless with, like almost everyone, and I had to cut so much out. And they were all pretty consistent about it too. But, no, there were just a lot of, you know, personality conflicts and things like that. Just, like, you get any 40, 50 people together, and they had a slightly different take. You know, 30 years on, people could still be very catty about, you know, a person doing this or that. But um, it was a nice place to work. People enjoyed it. Um, the Beatles were, in generally ver- really good bosses. Um, you know, Paul McCartney more or less checked out by late 69. But, what struck me, Ringo and George Harrison were there every day and uh, for the most part, and people just thought they were you know great people to work with and really wanted to make a go of it and uh, we, I was glad I was able to capture a lot of that mm. in people's you know, uh, recollections and and that's one of the other things that I've tried to do I, I tried to keep myself out of the narrative and my opinions. Uh, it was more you know some of the some of the quotes go on very long, but I think it very cap very much captures you know what it was like there, and only the people there could really explain what it was like you know going to Apple on a Tuesday morning and spending you know 10 hours working
0: there. So going back to the uh, the kind of start of the Apple story um obviously we know that Apple did exist before 1968 in in various different different forms but that was when as far as I can understand Apple kind of really expanded What do you think was the Beatles' kind of real motivation in expanding Apple? Do you think that their intentions were as seemingly honourable as John and Paul kind of suggested at that famous press conference? You know, you won't have to go down on your knees anymore. Or or do you think this was more of a commercial decision to really expand Apple?
1: I think it was. They were trying to create something, you know, to support the creativity of people their age. I mean, Peter Asher, you know, uh, he spoke about that, too. I mean, they had grown up at a time when everyone's wearing suit and ties in the studios. And it was very you know, regimented, you know, the UK in particular, uh, even at that point, 67, 68. So they were trying to create something where, you know, young people could maybe not go. You know, they wouldn't have to worry about the knee bit. But it's just like it was a little more you were talking to people more your age who were on your wavelength. And it was a big thing for them. Paul McCartney was the main driver as far as I can tell in 68 or so. And I think Mm. part of his motivation was he wanted to create that atmosphere and help undiscover talent. But secondly, you know, it was a little bit of an ego thing, you know, the star maker. Yes, I think it was a commercial thing. They saw all these people make incredible amounts of money um, in music publishing and record companies based on their music. And, you know, they had the Midas touch. I mean, particularly Paul McCartney at that time, he would just be tossing off songs and producing songs for other artists and see it go into the top 10, you can't fault them for saying, well, we can do this on our own and control it more, make it a much more um, you know, giving environment. And I think they initially went into that with a very good intention, but also the understanding that they would be able to you know, make some money on it because they weren't making a heck of a lot of money off the Beatle records uh, given the contracts that they were you know, signed to. It, it had gotten better slightly in 67 when their, their contract was renegotiated, but it's still – you know, it was still an opportunity to make some more money. I mean, Paul McCartney he had a production deal; he got money off of the production for the Mary Hopkin, you know, million sellers. So um, it's 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 fifty fifty. But it, I think they went into it with very honorable intentions.
0: Well, let's hope so. I'm sure that they did. Uh, so you, you mentioned Mary Hopkin there. Let's let's have a quick chat about some of the disparate and interesting artists that were signed to Apple, especially in that, that first year or so. Um, just tell us about some of those artists. Did they have anything in common? Was there a, a general kind of theme or essence of, of what Apple were looking for when they decided to sign an artist for their label?
1: Well, it's, it's hard for me to say, you know, not having actually been in the, you know, the, the Moore Street back room, but looking at it, retrospectively, it seems like they were not going too far out there. You know, they were, musicality and songs were really what drove it. You know, whether that's James Taylor doing his, you know, sort of folky rock songs or Mary Hopkin doing her pop songs, uh, the Badfinger guys, just the Ivies rather, you know, just doing an incredible array of of pop songs. You know, Jackie Lomax is also very song oriented. They didn't really go too far out in the limb. I mean, I think Contact, um, you know, which I, you know, describe in the book. They were probably the wildest, um, you know, strangest band that that they had, and they didn't end up releasing it. You know, it was just a little bit too far out at the time, pun intended. So I think initially when we went in, uh, it was really focused on you know, commercial songs that were very you know tuneful and more traditional, and uh, you know it worked out very well, um, obviously, for several of those artists, but. And as time went on, particularly after you know John Lennon went to America in 1971, they they went a little bit further out with the David Peels and Elephant's Memory. And obviously, Yoko Ono was a very boundary-stretching artist um, when she started making her own records in 1970. But for the first two years, I think they played it very straight, and they, they did a very good job. Um, even when you know the Billy Preston came in, the, the Doris Troys and all that, there was a little bit of a departure for them, and then Apple really wasn't structured to – Work and promote in the R&B field, but you know George Harrison just did an amazing job as a producer for both artists, and you know Billy was rewarded with a a you know, really big hit you know, out of the box with the, that's the way God planted. It. So it, it was very interesting how it came together, but it was all all songs really, I think initially, and you know, that's what they focused on.
0: Who was it that was that was kind of driving that recruitment? Was there a particular Beatle that would kind of talent scout, or did people approach them?
1: It was the individuals bringing people into Apple who were, you know, in orbit, you know. Uh, Peter Asher brought in James Taylor because he had a personal connection with, uh, you know, Danny Kurchmar, who was, uh, you know, James Taylor's buddy. And when he came to London, give him a call. Uh, Mal Evans, uh, you know, brought in the Ivies, you know, because he knew the manager and he was going back and forth and seeing the shows you know, George Harrison, you know, saw Billy Preston on stage and, you know, rang him up and said, come on in. And he obviously did that wonderful job with the, the Let It Be session work. But Then they said, hey, we're going to take the capital catalog. You know, Mary Hopkin came, you know, Twiggy and saw her on television. I, I think Paul McCartney had probably seen her as well. But, mm-hmm. you know, Twiggy bit in his head like, hey, you should look her up. And, you know, that's what they did. And um, it, it was all, you know, word of mouth and for with friends for the most part, you know, Jackie Lomax, you know, he knew the Beatles from way back when. He was already signed to publishing because, you know, he was talking to, you know, John Lennon about, hey, would you back this group that, the, you know, Chris Curtis of the Searchers and I would like to do? And he was like, forget the group. You know, you should be a songwriter and a, a solo artist. And he was already in. So I think most of them came through uh, the associations that were already had, you know, somewhat tenuous, but they still knew people or the Beatles themselves. And that's what early on, there wasn't a heck of a lot of, you know, People getting signed by sending in a tape or sending in acetates. It was all through uh, you know, personal connections.
0: Fair enough. So the the, the advert, the Alistair Taylor advert, uh, didn't bring in a, a huge amount of, of artists in the end?
1: It, it did. It brought in tons of tapes, but very few, or well, no recording artists came in through that. And I think they signed one person to publishing um, that came in the tapes, but they just. Build up rooms after room. They had to get a storeroom, you know, separately for it because it was too popular. But that wasn't how uh, people joined Apple, at least at this point.
0: So the the image of the the kind of pre-Cline Apple was of this kind of partly uh, through the Richard Ginell book that you mentioned was of this slightly kind of chaotic, maybe disorganized group of of people working in this beautiful kind of Georgian townhouse. Do you think that this is a fair description of that kind of pre client Apple? What, from the people that you spoke to, what was it like working in that in their office in the early years of Apple?
1: Well, well, two things when you look at that. I mean, first of all, it was incredibly chaotic and, and crazy. When you looked at EMI or Decca, you know, these were all companies where everyone's still going to work in the suits, men in '68, and you know, there would be a you know a drinks cart going around, you know, but there wouldn't be a, a full-on <laughs> refreshment center um, that they had. Derek Taylor's office. I think a lot of the craziness did come from or the perception of craziness, and a lot of people said, "Well, yeah, that's where it originated." Was Derek Taylor's press office? I mean, he he's very open about having you know a substance abuse problem at the time, but he was incredibly effective. You know, through all of that, um, he was a, a very good publicist and very uh, well regarded. But it, you know, the, the drinks were always flowing throughout the day, and there was plenty of other substances to be had. So people would go up there. I mean, down, down on the first floor in the record department, you know, Ron Cass ran a, a pretty tight ship. Um, it was a regular, you know, it was it was a regular record company. He came from Liberty Records in the UK, and it wasn't that far removed. But if if someone wanted to unwind or whatever, just up a, up a flight of stairs, two flights of stairs, and there was Derek's office, and there was a lot of oddness going on there, whether that's, you know, bringing the famous donkey in through the office to, you know, give us a gift to Derek Taylor and you know the hell's angels coming. You know that wouldn't happen at EMI. They would not have gotten past security. Um, Emily's family hanging out there for a week, uh, waiting for, to talk to John Lennon. You know that wouldn't happen. And uh, at another company, and they meant well. They really, for the first couple of years, they were trying to deliver on that promise. If you have a good idea, you know, come to us and we'll talk to you about it. And there were a lot of unstable people who thought they would had this great idea to do this or that, and they would get an audience, typically with Derek Taylor. But you know some sometimes another beetle or another uh, person in, in the management uh, they tried to honor that and it got a little out of hand at times and they had to call Jimmy the doorman to escort the person out so I, I think it was it was more in comparison to other you know music businesses at the time uh, certainly there was more of it that you would find but uh, I think it's more relative to uh, just what else was happening in London at that point in
0: time. The narrative that we know is that once once Alan Klein arrives, a lot of what you described just then is slightly kind of swept swept outside of the front door um and that kind of excess is, disappears. Firstly, why do you think the Beatles felt the need to kind of bring Klein into the picture? And do you think that this image of him sweeping a new broom through Apple is is fair?
1: Uh the Beatles felt that they needed to bring someone like Klein in because Apple records is one entity, but Apple itself, all the Beatles revenue went into Apple. Um, that was the whole part of the, you know, the tax plan that they, they started it with. And it happened to have a publishing division and a film division or record division, but all their personal money you know, outside of you know publishing money was going into Apple and it was being spent at a, at a very fast clip. You know, part of this is anytime you launch a new company, it's a lot of capital that needs to be used up front. So I, part of it was that, but you know, a lot of things that were going on at the time, the money was spent, they were spending on helicopters and houses and things like that. You know, John was buying Tittenhurst Park and they were taking helicopter rides to Shetland Islands, you know, to look at real estate and to buy an island and put a, his, you know, Sergeant Pepper caravan, you know, all this stuff was incredibly expensive and it was all being funneled through Apple. When they're looking at the balance sheet, they, yeah, Apple has spent a lot of money, but it was, they were spending it on themselves to a certain extent. And they needed someone with the business, you know, background to really, you know, take a look at the whole picture and, and rein things in. Um, Ron Cass was was a great record company guy, but he was really records. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a, a financial manager, a business manager. So, hence the need for for Klein um, or someone like him. You know, it could have been the Eastmans at the same time, uh, but someone to come in and just take a look at it. Um, Apple was the Apple records was easy way to, you know, cut costs up front, you know, whatever fire 15 people, or, or what have you and, you know, institute more traditional American business practices, like, all right, well, you spent 20 pounds out of petty cash, you know, where did it go, you got to write it up, you got to send it in, and to be, you know, signed off on and that, uh, you know, purchase orders, it was very common, it's still very common, you just don't go out and, you know, get 10 pounds and disappear. Um, You know, 10 pounds is back then than it, than it is now. But um, so I, I think it was, it was something that was needed. And he did clean out a lot of things, to be honest with you. you know, he got rid of Apple Electronics, which is an incredible waste of money. At the same time, you know, registering the name Apple Electronics turned out to be very lucrative. But in terms of what Magic Alex was doing... Um, there was no, nothing to be gained. You know, the whole Apple studio, we spent an incredible amount of money just in time, you know, trying to get a studio going. And it just ended the day, he was essentially a television repairman who had a couple of neat tricks uh, up his sleeves, you know, cutting down on some of the overhead of Apple records. Yeah. There was probably too many people working there. You didn't need, you know, X amount of people. You didn't need all these people in Apple films when they really weren't doing too much. Um, so that was helpful, but it was really just a, a small small portion of the spending. And Bill Oaks, you know, mentioned that he was, you know, worked with uh, Peter Brown. It was um, They needed to get control of the personal costs. And even Klein realized he could only do so much. You know, he couldn't tell John Lennon, like, no, you can't hire the helicopter to go looking for houses this weekend. Um, so he, he did something that was visible as possible. And that was where the, the Apple records, you know, clear out and the Apple publishing clear out and apple Films Clear Out came in, but whether that really made a big difference is probably negligible it 's still their own personal spending that drove a lot of the the outflow at apple, so to speak
0: so talking of of, of clearouts there, one of the things that I really got from the book was that by the time, by the time the early' '70s kind of comes around is a lot of the artists that you 've mentioned there James Taylor etc, they start to look for other labels to work for and, and sign for or in some cases that the book also makes clear, just abandon their musical careers that, you know, they're they're not going to make it on Apple. Therefore, they're going to go and try and do something else. What was it, do you think, that caused a lot of these artists to leave Apple and to to seek pastures new? Was the Beatles' split a a big part of that? Well, James
1: Taylor is the most famous one, and he was under contract for another four years, another four albums, and that he left and was able to leave is just amazing to me from a music business perspective. Um, Peter Asher and James took advantage of sort of a vacuum at the time. Um, you know, Ron Cass was pushed out in May or something of '69, and then Peter Asher left. There really wasn't anyone, you know, Alan Klein had just come in and he was, you know, trying to sort everything out. Um, Al Steckler, who did an amazing job out of New York to run the record label, really hadn't been in place yet. And uh, James Taylor. You made two attempts to record albums for Apple and they just couldn't get together. And then he had an accident in the late summer and he you know, broke both of his hands. He was sort of out of action. So uh, Peter Asher took advantage of the situation and not advantage in a bad way, but he decided, you know, they didn't want to work with Klein. Most of the contacts in the record division were gone. Um, you know, Jack Oliver was running it, but he hadn't really come up to speed yet. And time is critical. You know, James Taylor hadn't had an album out in almost eight, nine months. And that summer of 69, um, what I learned about, um, which I didn't know when I did the 2000 edition, he had been doing all these concerts and he'd become quite a big star or star in the making in America. He was you know, primed to blow wide open and Peter Asher knew that and knew he needed to have a label to to you know, capitalize on that. And Apple really wasn't in that place yet to do it in the United States, you know. Um, Ken Mansfield was was in the process of leaving as well, and there really wasn't anyone there to push the career like he did. So he made the decision to leave, and it, it worked out pretty well. Other artists, you know, it wasn't so much them leaving as record companies—they give you a shot, and if you don't, if the album doesn't happen, you get dropped. You know that happened to Jackie Lomax. Um, you know they gave him George Harrison put an incredible amount of time and, and money and effort and, and passion to, to develop Jackie's career, but it didn't happen. So he just let him go. Uh, White Trash, similar, you know, they, they had their chance, you know, they probably weren't the best artists to develop. They didn't have a songwriter, but you know, they, they had two singles that, you know, they gave it their best shot, but they were dropped. Uh, Mortimer, similar. I think, you know, Alan Klein, what I didn't know until I saw the contract a couple of years ago is they, the deal with Apple is like, you know, they would, they were under contract to Apple, but you know, they had to pay back $17,000 to uh, Phillips Records out of that Apple any revenue that Apple earned. And $17,000 was a lot of albums to be sold um, in 1970. So Klein probably looked at the deal and said, "You know, this just doesn't make sense." You know, from a business perspective. Um, so they they let Mortimer go. Um, you know, Billy Preston was another odd one. I think I think he probably had a deal offered with A and and he used his personal relationship with George to say, "Hey, can I go do this?" But it was similar. You know, he came on and, you know, he had a hit and all of a sudden the president of the label was gone, you know, and all of a sudden the American label was gone. And, you know, he was at that point, he, he had been in the business for 10 years. He knew a record companies worked. And uh, I think part of his reason not to get another hit, the reason why he didn't is because he knew that they're just, they didn't have the infrastructure in place at the label uh, to push it. Like they did when that's, uh, that's the way God planned it happened. So, I think the two of them left, but the rest, you know, Doris Troy, is similar, it just didn't happen, you know, and the deal wasn't they just didn't pick up her options. So I think that was more of it than anything else.
0: And a word about Badfinger. I mean, I, I always think Badfinger is the sort of the obviously for lots of reasons that would go on to be but the saddest story of Apple really, I think, is is Badfinger. I mean, listening to those records now, I mean there's some really strong songs over the albums that that appear on Apple. We know they had commercial success. What went wrong with Barfinger? Was it it anything to do with Apple or was it something kind of more personal to the group themselves?
1: They did incredibly well with Apple. I mean, Apple did a really great job launching a career, but um, they sold a lot of records, uh, particularly in America. You know, the albums did well. Singles were, you know, typically top 10. Um, the publishing without you, you know, that was, they were a major players in the American market and it was known that their Apple deal was up and the sharks were circling, you know, and you can't blame them. That's the way the music industry works. And uh, you know, Warner brothers in particular, they were a well-established company. You know, Derek Taylor was there already working. So there was a continuity and I I think they were able to leverage that. And they, they got a very what on paper. It was a very lucrative deal. Uh, There's a, you know, in my uh, interview with Al Steckler, you know, he said, after they left, you know, I broke it down with them and I said, all right, well, you have to pay for the albums and you have to pay for the promotion. And after that, it was like 60,000 an album. They, they thought they were millionaires. It was a multimillion dollar deal. But unlike Apple, Apple had this crazy deal at the time. Not crazy. It was part of their artists, uh, their artist friendly ways that they would pick up all the recording costs and the promotion costs and, from album one, the artists would get paid, which was unheard of. A typical record deal, artists wouldn't get paid till all the recording and promotion were recouped. Mm. You know, all that thing that took you from uh, the airport to uh, the office, that, that, that's all charged against the artist. And, you know, Apple didn't have a, a the royalty rate was modest for the time, but their, the way they structured the deal in terms of expenses was incredibly fair to the artists. In Badfinger's case, they assumed that they were going to just re-sign with Apple. Um, They were happy with Apple. Apple did a great job with them. Uh, But it was their business manager, their American business manager, Stan Pauley. He was looking for the money, the advance, because he would get, you know, whatever, 20% off of that right off the top. And there was no shortage of people offering who wanted to offer uh, Badfinger a deal. So I think there was a little bit of a surprise when they were told that, hey, you've just been signed to Warner Brothers, Sign these papers. Uh, At the same time, though, you know, It was a $2 million deal, so they couldn't quibble with that. I mean, they hadn't made a heck of a lot of money then at that point because it, it takes a while for record royalties to catch up. And they they were paying off their expenses, You know, their their, their trucks and everything like that that they are using in the UK. But yeah, I, I think they were a little surprised that they didn't re-sign with Apple, but I, I think they were very happy with the company. But uh, Tony King, who was the Apple A&R man at the time, I think captured it when he said, you know, someone weighs a $2 million check in your face. Well, off you go then. And and that's what happened.
0: Did the Beatles split affect how Apple was run? Uh, how did things kind of alter once the Beatles themselves start to, to work individually?
1: I don't think on a day to day it didn't it didn't change things that much. I mean George Harrison and Ringo were there all the time in London. Um, John Lennon there was up there a lot, and then when he moved to New York, he was in Apple at, at New York and Abco uh, a good amount of time. Uh, I think the biggest thing uh, is Paul McCartney leaving. You know, he did a lot of the production work with um, the Ivy slash Badfinger with "Come and Get It," and uh, certainly um, Mary Hopkin. You know, that was big. You know, when when that was a lot of friction when Paul McCartney left and she needed a new producer, she was you know very unhappy with Mickey Most eventually. You know, she had thought it would be more of a Donovan sort of relationship, and Mickey Most sort of took a assembly line pop singer relationship with her. and, that caused friction for her and her, you know, displeasure with you know her relationship with Apple. But on a day-to-day, the split I don't think made that much of a, a difference. I think the biggest thing was on the business side when Paul McCartney sued the Beatles. Uh, he famously got a receiver to handle the the finances, and that caused problems because all of a sudden Apple couldn't just say, "All right, well here's you know twenty thousand to go in the studio or to make a film." Uh, it all had to go through the receiver. And there were there were issues with, well, Badfinger saying, well, why can't we get our royalties that we're owed? It's like, well, the receiver needs to approve it and they're sitting on it. You know, there are certain Apple Films that you know, they couldn't get the distribution because the receiver wouldn't stamp, you know, sign off on the, the, the 50,000 pounds they needed to get in the theaters. So I think from a business perspective, that was the biggest issue. And, and not having Paul McCartney around, obviously, but, um, you know, George Harrison, for example, was incredibly involved, you know, throughout the entire... Uh, time both as a a label owner uh, a producer Um, he was very involved with the launch of the apple studios so if someone needed to connect with the Beatles, they were typically there i mean what i was shocked with is they would still sign the checks you know all the royalty checks they would come in once a week and you know george and ringo would sign you know 50 60 checks that would be going out that day and it's it's mind-boggling to think of someone today of their stature sitting in the office and just signing off checks for 15 pounds to a songwriter for that month or, or what have you. So there was, you know, definitely involvement.
0: So after the split, obviously there's the, through the seventies and into the eighties, what kind of company was was Apple in, in that period? What happened with Apple in that kind of, uh, almost fallow years of the eighties into the nineties? Well,
1: Neil Aspinall summed it up as he was just trying to, you know, pull all the strands of string together. You know, they didn't have really great filing systems. So he was just trying to figure out, you know, who owned, you know, the Beatles, uh, cartoon series that was out in america early on you know who owned this film how long do we own it for you know when do we get the rights back um so it was just trying to get all the information the intellectual property together uh to a large part you know what happened to these tapes you know he went looking for all the let it be film camera tapes and they were gone you know he tried to track that down a lot of it was trying to protect the beatles brand and develop the brand you know it's like well you can't you know do these beetle dolls in america you know well apple became famously litigious you know stopping certain projects because you know trying to maintain the rights and then around when they when they finally settled with capital and emi um, in the late 80s that set the stage for them to control the apple the Beatles catalog a lot more um so they started controlling uh development of the you know, any projects that went on from there and then it also opened the door to relaunching the apple catalog which was again a very uh, impressive undertaking given the you know the limited appeal i mean you know, certainly the bad finger things would have done well you know mary hopkin may have done well but some of the things that they reissued it was very impressed they did they did that at the time and that's there was a brief little resurgence when apple sort of became that old that apple uh, of yore and they brought derek taylor in to do the press releases and do you know press events for those reissues and like the the all all the Beals things that were coming out at the time. And it it was, it was really great. You know, he did, you know, the press adverts and there was definitely a sense of it was sort of back to, not quite back to where it was, but, you know, he and Neil were working on things and there were other folks involved as well who had been there uh, in the sixties. So it it, it definitely had the feel. And unfortunately when Derek uh, passed away um, in in the mid nineties, it changed, it changed again. And it became more traditional and Neil just sort of, you know, focused on, you know, getting product out the door, you know, whether that was one, which was just remarkable, you know, happening, who would have thought that an album of all these Beatle tracks that, that everyone had, you know, in so many different variations would become whatever a $20 million selling album and CD. And it it reestablished the Beatles with a new generation to a certain extent. And it, it again, set the stage for Apple to do some really exciting things because people realized the potency of the Beatles brand and the music, it was still very powerful and, um, you know it it, love kicked off then and it was just a whole bunch that went on but starting around 2000 or so apple became more of a rights management company and they were really focused on the the beetle pieces and developing beetle projects and uh, just really defining you know maximizing use of of the the catalog that they had on hand and i think that's what they've done you know throughout you know through today
0: speaking of of today some of the, the events that you detail in in the book of things that have happened since the original was published um tell us about some some of those projects i mean you spoke a little bit there about the the days of yore i mean is there anything in the company that apple is now it, is there any of that kind of spirit left in there from from what you found out for the book
1: jeff jones uh, did a really great job I and mean, he really was the perfect and bring on you know he, he's had a big experience in catalog and uh, he was a Beatles fan and he's he's also he just appreciated the Apple legacy and I give Apple immense credit for the job they did with those last reissues in 2010 the, the non-Beatles catalog um, you know whether it's pulling together the box set or they did a you know a t-shirt and box in America all those CDs they were very Focused on doing as best they could, and Jeff Jones knew that you know we got to bring things out of them. They went even deeper into the archive to find unreleased tracks that weren't on the previous editions. Uh, the sound restoration that they did—they they brought in the same guys as the Beatles. It was it was night and day compared to the original ones. Um, you know the, the film, the uh, image archive. They, they put a lot of new pictures, so they knew what would get people enticed to buy it again and hopefully open it up to a, to a wider audience. And one of the things that was very impressive that I found is they really tried to honor the artist-friendly ethos of the original label. Like, take for instance the James Taylor stuff. Uh, you know, I've seen the contract. Um, I've seen all the Apple contracts for the most part, and there was never any right of first refusal. And you know, James Taylor sitting in the Apple vault is a, a wonderful version of. Uh, fire and rain the, the first version with the full band and i i've only heard a snippet of it when someone tried to sell or did sell acetate on ebay and it, it sounds sensational but uh, he doesn't want it out for a variety of reasons i think he just thinks that the original version's the, the defining version mm. but Apple didn't put it out out of deference to, to james taylor's wishes but they don't need to i mean the contract he submitted it. It's their property, and they could have very easily put it on there and sold an extra whatever, 10,000 copies of the CD, but they still defer to the artist. Uh, Mary Hopkin, the same way. She's a little hesitant to, you know, delve into the, the, the vault, so to speak. There, there's a lot of Mary Hopkin material in the, the Apple vault that wasn't used. Um, you know, she was okay with one or two tracks, and that's fine, but they didn't need to, you know, To to be so mindful of the artist's wishes, they could have very easily said, all right, well, here's another 10 tracks we could put on the CD. It's going to sell another 5,000 copies. But out of the old, or in keeping with the old uh, artist-friendly spirit of the company, they didn't do that. Um, When they did the reissues, too, they were very conscious about trying to bring in the artist uh, to help promote it. You know, Joey Mullen was brought in to do press, and he came to the Apple office and everything like that, and they were – you know, and, and Joey Mullen said, you know, he he caught a lot of the old feeling. He was like, wow, it's like it was in the old days. I mean, it's a little bit more controlled, but, you know, they're trying to do the right thing. And the artists are friendly and the, the label's very positive and had a really good vibe. One of the little asides that I was surprised by that Joey had mentioned was, you know, Jeff Jones had talked to him about, you know, we were, he did pitch the idea to the Beatles about sort of relaunching Apple to do catalog things like outside of, you know, either either issuing deeper into the catalog or acquiring catalogs and putting them out under the Apple label. And that's essentially what Danny Harrison is doing right now with Dark Horse. He's, uh, you know, he went out and got rights to the Joe Strummer label, the, the Joe Strummer catalog, and he's doing these incredible re- reissues on vinyl. And, you know, they own the Shankar stuff, but that was surprising. That would have been wonderful to see, you know, whatever catalog, new Apple CDs coming out. And they could have run Apple sort of as a Sony legacy, you know, just buying little things. I think people would like to be involved with the Beatles. But at the end of the day, you know, Paul and, and the Harrison estate just didn't want to get involved with it. And I, I can get why, you know, there's enough to go in on with their own. The, the mistake, not mistake, but the challenge of the original label was, you know, all these, these they had four artists trying to you know, get their own records and everything out. And then they had another five or six Apple artists. And obviously, you know, if you have only a, a certain amount of people, ten people working, you're an active artist. You want to focus on pushing, you know, your work and then yes, if they can get the other stuff, the bad thing of things great, but you know, let's focus on the Beatles things. And I think that's what they decided to do with Apple.
0: So just to conclude our our chat, Stephen. What are your kind of hopes or if you've got any insight about what's next for Apple? Um, is there anything that you personally would like to see them do? What, what kind of direction do you think they'll go with Beatle releases? Do you think we'll, th- we'll see things like Star Club or Hollywood Bowl or, or, or anything like that? Is there another area for Apple artists you think that they could maybe go down in the future?
1: Well, that's sort of how I end the book. Um, really, one of the last paragraphs is, you know, the future of Apple, what happens, anybody knows. Because really, this, the Let It Be is the last 50th anniversary, and it's the last album. I, I think we're going to see an incredible, incredible get back in between the movie and the, you know, the CDs and records that come out. Hopefully a restored version of the original Let It Be. I would be surprised if they didn't put that out, you know, along with the, the new version. But after that they're, they're sort of out of catalog to release i mean could they go back i mean revolver probably deserves a, a, a giles martin remix and there's a little bit you know they can put in some other stuff but there's there's not a heck of a lot that they haven't done already so um, i would love to see you know a, a, a new and improved star club i mean the the technology i think they can restore those to a much higher grade than they could even you know, 10 years ago, um, the DECA edition tapes, I'm surprised that that hadn't come out yet. So there, there is material there and they're moving at a furious clip, you know, not not to be on a glum note, uh, a grim note, but, you know, Paul McCartney and Ringo are getting up there. There will come a day when they're not going to be creating new material or be available to, to promote things um, that's, that's life, you know, it's just it's just numbers. So I think they're trying to get a lot of stuff Well, uh, the two of them are healthy and happy and can actually contribute a lot to both the development and the promotion of the project. So hopefully we're going to see a couple of those things happen in the next couple of years. Then I think a lot of it's going to be rights management. You know, right now we don't know how streaming is going to really develop, um, you know, with the royalty structures and things like that. Um, The Sirius Radio, um, they've actually launched an Apple show, you know, for an Apple jam for Apple artists, which is pleasantly surprising, and it's going to introduce more people to uh, that catalog, and it really is a a really good catalog. There's things like Chris Hodges in there, um, you know, Sundown, some interesting material that Mary Hopkins' Earth Songs, Ocean Songs, it's a timeless album, Uh, and if people hear that, I I think, you know, there could be legs on, on the catalog, but they need to get you know, it needs to get exposed and then they need to get the distribution together because it seems like a lot of times that Apple original catalog, sometimes CDs are available, sometimes they're not. And I, I'm not sure how long that, that universal distribution deal is in place. I think it's another five years with the original Apple catalog. So we'll see how it plays out. In the meantime, there's room for companies you know like Cherry Red to do like the the Apple you know Apple related good as gold box set, because there's a lot of material the music publishing world that people weren't generally aware of till the, the RPM CDs came out. The Beatles were pretty big music publishers through Apple. Um, There's that Apple studio CD that people weren't really aware about in there. So I think that's a lot of fun. And then there are, there are some Apple masters that little by little have been reverting back um, to the artists. Um, You know, for example, that Mortimer album that uh, came out in 2017, it is a really good album. Mm. And it was, sitting in the vault for, you know, 45, 50 years. So there is a little bit more of that. Um, I'll be honest, there's not a heck of a lot. There are not too many unreleased albums. Some sitting in the Apple vault, uh, maybe Ronnie Spector. I'd love to see Danny Harrison put out something on, on Dark Horse uh, with those sessions. There's almost an the album, not quite, but, you know, they can they can cobble together something, I'm sure. So it'll be exciting to see what they do over the next couple of years. But I think the, the volume is going to be pretty heavy once they get back Everything happens there, and I look forward to see what they do with that. It should be should be a
0: lot of fun. It certainly should be, and uh, a much needed dose of fun after the the year that so that the, absolutely the the planets had. Um, well, Stefan, this has been a really really fascinating uh, conversation. Uh, so I, I thank you for your time. Those were the days. The Beatles and Apple uh, version two is a really eye opening read. Stefan, thanks so much for your time.
1: Joe, thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you.